8, uh, and if you guys grab one of the church Bibles, uh, those Bibles, it is page 917, 917, and if you guys need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will give you guys a Bible. Uh, once again, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 30, 38. Uh, my name is Ken Sinton. I have the honor of being a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location, so an honor to be with you guys. Um, also, as well, too, I hope you guys can join us next week. Next week, we're starting our new summer series uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, it's an Old Testament book with all these really incredible stories of broken and sin-filled people who lived as though there was no God. And what's going to be really cool about the book of Judges as we study it is that as we continue to see flawed people, we will see over and over again a faithful God. So we hope you guys can join us next week as we begin our summer series in Judges. But for today, we're going to do a standalone message uh, on the topic of baptism. Now, the video you guys just saw here was from our baptisms at the lake last year where all of our nine locations come together and celebrate the stories of transformation. And I can easily say that baptisms at the lake has become one of my favorite things to do here at Park. And what we try to do as a church is try to do at least once a year to spend a Sunday teaching on baptism. And we do this for numerous reasons. First, if you have not been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to take the step of obedience and be baptized. Secondly, if you've been baptized already, you are not off the hook, okay? You can't check ESPN, okay? You know what I mean? You take, your job now is to take good notes and share this with others who need to be baptized. And for some of you who are sitting here today and you're not yet believers, I pray that as we talk about baptism, you will see again the beauty and joy of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So with that, let's go ahead and read our verses, and then we'll jump right in, okay? So once again, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 38. Verse 26 here. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is the word of God. You know, I was baptized when I was in college back on September 17th of 2000. Let me just show you a picture of that moment here, okay? Now, at this point, I've been already a Christian for eight years, and it took me a really long time to get baptized simply because 
I didn't really care that much about baptism. The only reason I considered baptism was because as I was reading through the church announcement, I noticed that the date for the next baptism was the same date as my wife's then-girlfriend's birthday. And I thought, man, it would be so romantic for us to do this together, right? So I told my wife, then-girlfriend, yeah, let's do this. We took the class. We were ready to get baptized. But then we ran into a big problem. My wife's parents, who are not Christ followers, said that they would not support her. Because to be baptized in their minds meant that her, their daughter would have been brainwashed by the church. So my wife, out of honor for her parents, decided not to get baptized and to wait. Now, when I hear this, I am fuming. I go straight into my pastor's office, and I tell him, I'm not getting baptized. And he's like, whoa, what's going on here? Why are you saying that? I mean, the hopeless romantic that I am, I said that if I can't do this with her, I don't ever, ever want to do this. I want to do it with her. Now, my pastor's sitting there. He's like, you're, you're an idiot. Like, he's, he's looking at me. He, didn't, he doesn't say that, but I can see it on his face here. And, and, he, and he says this to me, Kenson, is this baptism about you or is it about Jesus? And I was like, oh, man. And, and he was right. He was absolutely right. So I went ahead and I got baptized even without my girlfriend. That's why I look so depressed in the picture back there. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? You know, today we're in Acts chapter 8, and we see this Ethiopian eunuch get baptized. And I want to first say this, is that this is a story that is first not about baptism. This is not the point of the story here. It's not first about baptism. It's first about the Great Commission, okay? Now, let me remind you again of what the Great Commission is. It's the final commands that Jesus gives his church as he ascends to heaven. And let me show you what he says in Matthew chapter 28. He says this to the church, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, what's interesting here is that when you read our story here, you see the Great Commission playing out. Okay, let me just show it to you here. First, we see this, that Philip is a goer. He is going. In verse 26, it says that the angel of the Lord told him to rise and go. So in verse 27, Philip rises and goes. Also in verse 29, the Spirit says to go over to this man. So in verse 30, Philip is running to this man. So Philip is a goer. Secondly, he goes to the nations. Who does God send Philip, a Middle East Jewish man, to? He sends him to an Ethiopian. And Ethiopia back then was on the outskirts of civilization. It was located in the Horn of Africa by northern Sudan. So Philip is going, and now he is going to the nations. And thirdly, we see that he is teaching, that Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and the first thing they do is have a Bible study around the book of Isaiah. And in verse 35, he tells this eunuch all the good news about Jesus Christ. So if you guys see what's happening here, what we have happening in this story is that Philip is disciple-making, that he's going, he's engaging the nations, he is teaching, and then finally in verse 38, Philip is baptizing this Ethiopian eunuch, and this eunuch is obeying the commands of Jesus to be baptized. All the Great Commission can be seen in our story, and this is the reason why baptism is important to the church. This is why I bring this up. Because baptism is a part of disciple-making. 
That baptism is a sign that the church is being obedient to Jesus. Baptism means that the gospel is going forth and the kingdom of God is being established. Baptism means that Christ followers are moving into a deeper and deeper commitment in following Jesus. Max Lucado, a Christian author and pastor, said this about baptism. Let me show it to you. He said this. Baptism separates the tire kickers from the car buyers. Right? And finally, baptisms help us as a church keep our eyes on Jesus. That baptism is one of the two ordinances, the other one is communion, that Jesus gives to the church to practice on a regular basis because it's in these ordinances we are to be reminded that the center of our church is not programs, it's not the preacher, it's not entertainment, it's not if you like the songs or if it was good music being played. The center of the church is Jesus Christ. Every baptism, every ordinance proclaims him. So with that, here are the three truths from our verses around baptism. Let me show it to you. Here are the three truths if you guys like to take notes. First is this, baptisms are an outward expression of faith. Secondly, baptisms are for believers. And thirdly, baptisms are done through immersion. Done through immersion. So first is this, baptisms are an outward expression of faith. You know, a very simple way to describe baptism is that it's an outward act pointing to an inward spiritual reality. That the reason you get into the water is to show publicly how your heart has been transformed by Jesus Christ. And we see this with the Ethiopian eunuch here. Look at verse 27 again. It says this. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, these verses tell us a lot about who this man is. First, we know that this man is on the top of his game here, okay? He is the treasurer of this entire kingdom. He, he was the CFO. And on top of that, he was blinged out, okay? He was rolling around in a chariot being driven by someone else, reading his own personal scroll of Isaiah. And back then, before printing presses, that would have been very rare to get your hand on that. You would need a lot of money to have that. Also as well, too, he was a self-made man. All that, the, all that he had here was not handouts here. He earned it because if you wanted to serve in the royal court, if you wanted to show that you can be trusted in the royal court, you had to be willing to let yourself be castrated. This man paid the price to get to the top. This eunuch was wealthy was powerful, part of the upper class. He was a driven individual. He, he, he was sitting in first class. This man, by all cultural standards, in our cultural standards, he would have made it. But instead of finding happiness in his life, we see nothing but emptiness. And the reason we know this is because in verse 27, it says that he is going to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, now let me show you a map of what this journey would have looked like here, okay? So what you see here on the map here is that, that red dot all the way to the top, that's Jerusalem, and the red dot on, on the bottom here, that's Ethiopia here, okay? Now, it's estimated here that it's at least 500 miles to go from point A to point B. It would have taken close to two months to make this journey. The question we have to ask with this detail is why? Why would this man who has done it all, made it all, 
make this journey of 500 miles, make this dangerous journey when he had the comforts of Ethiopia, that, that he was the king there. He was the CFO. He had dozens of temples, dozens of other gods that he could have chosen to worship. Why does he choose to go up to Jerusalem? He makes this long journey because he was spiritually empty. That we see the eunuch here that as he's returning home, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53 in verses 32 and 33. Let me read them again. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. As the eunuch is reading these verses, he is stunned by the sacrifice and suffering in these verses. He just doesn't get it. And in God's perfect timing, Philip shows up, jumps on the chariot, hears him reading Isaiah 53 here and says, um, do you know what you're reading there, right? You know, I wish all spiritual conversations started that easy, okay? I wish it was that easy. But this man says this, who is this person? Is it about the prophet or is it someone else? And I bet Philip was like, oh, I got you now. I got you, I got you. And we read here that he shares the good news about Jesus with him. That he tells the eunuch here that Jesus was the lamb that was slaughtered so that you can be healed. That Jesus was the one who was denied justice so that you can be righteous before God. That Jesus was the one who died so that now you can finally live. And as this Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel and experiences the love and healing of Jesus, he becomes a Christ follower. And it's after this conversion he now wants to get baptized in verses 36 to 38 here. Now, it's in this salvation experience we see the significance of baptism. That baptism was how he showed his faith in Jesus. Now, notice here that this eunuch first doesn't get baptized and then converts. He experiences conversion and then expresses his salvation through baptism. And this is the same pattern we see throughout the book of Acts. Faith then baptism. And let me just show you a bunch of verses that point to this. You see this in Acts, in Acts 8.12. Simon the magician believes and is baptized. Acts 9. Saul, soon to be Paul, believes and then is baptized. Acts 10. Gentiles believe and are baptized. Acts 16. Lydia believes and then baptized. Acts 16 again. Philippian jailer believes and then baptized. Crispus and his household believes and then baptized. People in Ephesus believe and then baptized. Example after example after example after example in the book of Acts is that you first believe in Jesus, then you respond with baptisms. Church, please hear me. Baptisms do not save. Instead, they announce salvation. You, you know, a helpful way to see baptism is to see it as a symbolic act. You know, for example, you know, we all understand that this wedding ring here is a symbol, right? Now, this wedding ring is my third wedding ring, okay? Now, I wasn't married three times, okay? But I lost my two other ones because I'm a klutz, okay? So I lost my two other ones. Now, let me ask you, when I didn't have my ring for those couple of weeks before buying a new one, did it mean that I wasn't married? Did it mean that since I didn't have the ring, I can play the field? You know, does it mean that I can now make a profile on coffee makes, meets, beats bagel, right? Does that, is that what it means? Is that what it means, right? No, because what makes marriage a marriage is not the ring. It's what the ring represents. 
It represents the commitments, the vows, the giving of myself to my bride. The ring points to that relationship. It does not make the relationship. And this is the same thing with baptism, that it's a sign pointing to a relationship. It shows that Jesus loves me and I love him. It shows that we are now connected. I don't need to wear my wedding ring in order to have a marriage, just like how I don't need baptism to be a Christ follower. But yet, why do I insist every single day to make sure that I'm wearing my wedding ring? is so that I can visibly express the love and commitment I have towards my wife. It's to let other people know, sorry ladies, you know, I'm spoken for. You know, I, you, know you gotta know that stuff, right? And this is why baptism should be important for all of us because it's how we publicly express our love for Jesus. Baptism is an expressive act. It's not a saving act. Also, consider this example as well, that when the thief was on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he wasn't baptized. The thief who was facing death, he finally confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and he cries out to Jesus while on the cross with him, remember me when you enter into the kingdom. And Jesus replies, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say anything else more. He doesn't add more. He doesn't say, hey, guys, uh, this person wants to be saved. He needs to get washed. You know, where is the water basin? Where is the cup of water? You know, where is the super soaker? This guy needs to get wet, right? He doesn't do any of that. Why? Because baptisms do not save. Church rituals do not save. Getting wet does not save. Jesus saves, period. Amen? Amen. Baptisms do not earn faith. Baptism is how you express the faith that you have. Here's the second truth about baptism. Baptisms are for believers. Baptisms are for those who have professed a saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, it's at this point we need to comment on this practice of infant baptism that is practiced by many churches and denominations and being a pastor here at Park for so long, I know that many of you who are sitting here right now, you have been baptized as an infant. First, I do want to say this is that as a church, we do not practice infant baptism. But before I share our position, I first want to say that there are many good and faithful and biblical churches that perform infant baptism. That churches that perform infant baptism do so, and I'm going to try my best to explain this, by continuing the idea of circumcision in the Old Testament. That in the Old Testament, circumcision was done to an infant boy who was about eight days old, and it was done to declare that they were part, that this child was now a part of the family of a God, that now the promises of God applied to, to them. So infant baptizers would say that baptism is a way that we continue to give that picture of circumcision, that we are the people of God, that we are part of the new covenant, that we are part of these new promises. Now, this position differs greatly from the Catholic Church that also practices infant baptism because the Catholic Church would believe that baptism of an infant can save the soul of an infant. This position is nowhere supported in the scripture and would contradict that salvation is by grace alone and not by works. So Christian denominations like Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Reformed churches that practice infant baptism would strongly disagree with this Catholic 
practice. Because these churches, just like us, believe that baptism, once again, is an expression of salvation. It does not earn you salvation. But what makes infant baptizers a little bit different in these denominations is that the expression of faith is not for the child, or it's the expression of faith is for the family to make. As Park Community Church, the reason we don't practice infant baptism is because we don't see this as an obvious and clear teaching in the Bible. That the practice of infant baptism isn't consistent with the pattern that I showed you guys over and over and over again in the book of Acts, where we first see someone confess their need for a savior and then get baptized. And when you think about it, an infant simply has no capacity to do that. An infant can't profess faith, an infant can't make decisions, an infant can't repent of sins, Baptism is meant to be a step of obedience for a person to express their faith through this action. An infant can't do this. They can't make that volitional choice. Also, when you just think about it from the very physical practice of it, that the idea of circumcision and the idea of baptism are two very radically different things. That if you were told when you became a Christ follower that if you want to be initiated into the Christian community, you have the choice to either be circumcised or to be baptized. What would you choose? The answer is pretty obvious, right? I, baptism all day. So even the physical acts are not the same thing here, right? So there's a difference there. As a church, we don't practice infant baptism. We practice believer's baptism. Now notice here, I said believer's baptism and not adult baptism. A very important distinction here. Because to say adult baptism means that someone is baptized because of a certain age or physical maturity in order to be baptized. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches believers' baptism, that as long as someone can profess faith and explain the relationship with Jesus Christ and the significance of their baptism, they should get baptized. So if a child can do this, they should get baptized. This also means that baptisms are not for super-Christians. They're not for super-Christians. For example, the eunuch here is a brand new believer. That at the very best, he has a basic understanding of the gospel. He is yet to clean up his life, resolve any issues he has back at home. And any of you guys who came to know Christ later on in your life, you know exactly what that's like. That just because you became a Christ follower didn't all of a sudden mean that life was nice and dandy, that everything was all cleaned up. His life was still messy. This eunuch here was not a super-Christian. He was not super holy. He was not super knowledgeable. He was not super experienced with the faith. Yet he gets baptized. The eunuch says in verse 36 to Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip here has his chance to say something else, to add anything else. That Philip could have said to the eunuch, well, have you taken those theology classes? Well, have you conquered and repented of all your sins? You know, have you spent months and months proving how good you are? We don't see any of that. All the eunuch has in that moment was the core truth of the gospel, and it changed his heart. And for Philip, that was enough to baptize him. You know, for some of you today, you've been waiting a very long time because you want to be more mature. You want to be more knowledgeable. You want to be more put together. You want to stop struggling with that sin. And when all these things finally happen, then you'll be baptized. You know, this is well-intentioned, but these are not prerequisites that we see in the Bible for being baptized. The only thing that needs to happen is this. Do you believe that Jesus have, has forgiven your sins? And will you follow him 
the rest of your life? If the answer is yes, then you're ready for baptism. Baptisms are not for saints to show off. It's for sinners who need grace. Amen? Amen. And here's the third truth around baptism. Baptisms are by immersion. You know, verse 38 here. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and when they came up out of the water, okay? Now, we need to notice here that you don't need to come up out of water uh, unless you are in the water. That the practice of baptism by immersion is an example that we see throughout the entire New Testament. You know, for example, when Jesus was baptized by John, he was immersed. Now, let me show it to you. In Matthew 3, 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Another example is with John the Baptist. In John chapter 3, verse 23, John also says here, was baptizing at Enam near Salem because water was plentiful there. Now, John is at Enam here because he needed lots of water. You don't need lots of water if you're just sprinkling. You will need lots of water if you're planning on doing immersion. Also, the word baptism in the Greek means to plunge, to dip, to immerse. There are dozens of other Greek words that say sprinkle, pour, and dip. None of those words are used in the Bible for baptism. It is just the word baptism. So this New Testament model, what we see here over and over again, is baptism is done by immersion. Now, why does this matter? It's because the act of immersion best symbolizes the message of the gospel. You know, let me just walk you through the picture of someone's baptism, okay? Let me just walk you through it. First, you have this. You have the person walking into the water. That's a picture of old life, a picture of a rebellious life, a Christless life, a sin-filled life. And as they stand in the water, they are now submerged into the water. That's a picture of being buried with Christ. That in that brief moment as you're underwater, you're surrounded by darkness and silence. You can't breathe because you're in the water. That is a taste of death. That is a picture of the old self dying. That just like how Christ died on the cross, we too can now die to our old selves. But this is the good news. You don't stay in the water forever. You don't. You come up out of the water. You emerge from the darkness. You breathe again. And when you do it with Christian community, you hear clapping and cheering and saying, yeah, way to go. That's a picture of resurrection. That's a picture of new life that we have in Christ. That is a picture of the eternal hope that we have. This is why immersion best proclaims, the, why we do immersion, because it best proclaims all the good news of what Christ has done for our salvation. Baptism is never about us. It is always about Jesus Christ. You know, in Romans 6, Paul says this about baptism. Now, let me show it to you. He says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life here. Now, every commentator that I've read here would agree that this is a physical baptism, not a spiritual baptism, but a literal water baptism. And what's happening is Paul right now is showing the picture of the gospel through baptism, 
right? You notice in the verses, he talks about being baptized into death, being buried with Christ, raised with Christ, with the newness of life. That's all the gospel message here. Now, why is Paul saying this? In the context of Romans 6 right now, there are some Christ followers who are tempted to abuse grace. That now they believe that Jesus forgives my sin, which now must mean that I can sin as much as I want and Christ will have to forgive me. And Paul's like, what is wrong with you? No, that, that is wrong. That's a misunderstanding of grace. That grace should never lead us to sin more, but to sin less. Because grace tells you that there was a Savior who loved you so much that he died for you so that you can be forgiven. That this is the good news of grace that makes it look precious, that makes grace costly, that makes grace a gift. So Paul in Romans 6 here starts off by saying, stop abusing grace. And how does he tell them to do that? He tells them, look to your baptism. Stop abusing grace and look to your baptism. Why? Because every time you look to your baptism, you preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. And this is how you resist sin. It's not by ignoring the temptation. It's not by muscling through the temptation. It's always by looking to Jesus and seeing him greater than any earthly desire. And Paul says that a way that you can do that is by looking at your baptism, looking at that sweet moment that is in that powerful picture of baptism, you can get hope. That if you want to fight against sin, look to your baptism. If you want to experience new life, look to your baptism. If you want a high view of grace, look to your baptism. If you want to have hope, look to your baptism. If you want to have courage, look to your baptism. That as a Christ follower, our baptisms are meant to be a spiritual resource for us to fight against sin and Satan because your baptisms always point your eyes to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So what's some application here? Let me just give you a few applications. First is this, for some of you who have not been baptized or you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you to go to our baptism class that is coming up. That here for the South Loop, it will be on Sunday, June 17th from 11 to 12, right after our gathering. Once again, Sunday, June 17th from 11 to 12. Now please hear me, going to this class does not commit you to anything. So go and learn more and God willing, We'll see you out at Lake Michigan on July 15th. Now, for those who have already been baptized, this is your application. Encourage others towards baptism. You know, how did the eunuch know that he needed to be baptized? It's because Philip explained baptism to him. You know, what that means is this. Parents, you need to spend the time to explain it to your kids. Small group leaders, you need to spend the time to teach your people on baptism and move them towards that direction. For the Christ followers in this room, you need to go and share the gospel with others so that they can experience the joy of baptism after their conversion. And finally, for some of you here today who are not believers, there is good news for you in baptism. Baptism says that your life can be transformed. That in Christ you can have a new life, a new identity, a new heart, a new family, a new community, that this is the good news of baptism. That baptism doesn't say that Christ came to make smart people smarter or to make, you know, stronger people even stronger. No, what baptism says is that Jesus came to make broken people, empty people, crushed people, lost people into whole people, loved people, full people, 
forgiven people. When the eunuch was baptized, he did so because he had this new life in Christ. If you surrender your life to Christ today, this new life, this transformed life can be yours as well. You know, let me just close, I know, with this story. You know, as you can imagine, it was really heartbreaking for my wife to feel the rejection from her parents around not being baptized. So, you know, for two years, my wife patiently waited and waited. And when the church would offer opportunities to be baptized again, my wife, in the most gracious and kind way possible, would engage with her family. And over and over again, she would hear from her mom, no, we won't go. No, we will not support you. But after two years of doing everything that she could to honor her parents, my wife took the step of obedience. They get baptized. She told her mom that, Mom, you know, I love you, but I'm going to go ahead and make this decision. And she gave her a printed church invitation to the baptism. And the mom, you know, kind of takes it, you know, puts it to the side. You know, and my wife's like, you know what? Like, I got a lot of clout in my church. I'll save a whole row for you at the church for you. You know what I mean? Like, bring the whole family. Like, I want you to be there. And the mom is just kind of dismissive and just like, she doesn't respond to anything. So the day comes, and my wife has no idea if her family is coming. All she's praying about is that, God, will they come so that they can witness you in this baptism? So she comes out of the corridor, steps into the water, immediately looks out, looks to the row that she set aside for her family, and she begins to tear up because she sees in that entire row her whole family, her mom, dressed in their Sunday's best. I was sitting there, and I didn't hear a single thing my wife was saying. I was just bawling. I was just crying like crazy. <laughs> but I do remember this, that when my wife got up there, she crushed it. She shared her story and made much of Jesus in her baptism. Church, if you guys hear anything today, baptisms are never about us. They are always about Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your kindness and in your wisdom, that God, that you give us the ordinance of baptism. That God, that you protect us from self-glory and self-promotion. That God, that you protect us from centering the church on anything else but you. And Father, I pray that for all of us here in this room, that as we consider the picture of baptism, that ultimately what makes it meaningful and significant is not someone getting into the water, but what makes it significant, again, is that it reminds us that there is a Savior who loved us, who lived for us, who died for us, who resurrected for us, who ascended for us, so that now we can have hope and joy forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.